Assalamu alaikum and welcome to another episode of the TMV podcast brought to you by the Muslim Vibe. My name is Salim Qasim. As always, I'm your host for this week's podcast. On this week's podcast, I'm joined by Shane Atkinson, um, who's from a Southern Baptist background and grew up in Jackson, Mississippi. Um, he accepted the religion of Islam uh, in 1999 and he's a, the Muslim Life Coordinator at Elon University and teaches, mentors and provides emotional and spiritual support for converts in North Carolina. Um, we spoke about a variety of things um, dealing with identity um, and his very unique, I guess, perspective on things being uh, a Southern Muslim, so like a Muslim from the, the deep south in in America, and he was actually in, in a documentary on PBS called um, Redneck Muslim, and and I mentioned to him when we start chatting that that's the one thing that kind of drew me to his story and 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 got us to reach out in the first place because it was such a a fascinating and an interesting way of, of of terming things. Redneck Muslim, you don't almost associate the two words together, so it was. It was a really interesting conversation we had um, looking at, well, I, I don't want to ruin it, to be honest, but, you know, drawing on his personal um, journey and experiences and how he's able to kind of link that in with the work that he does as a chaplain as well at a hospital um, and various other things. So definitely have a listen and, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Just before we get underway with the podcast, I'd like to make a very quick um, appeal to our listeners um, we rely in part on donations and support from our audience. All of our content is free to consume, um, but obviously, you know, we strive for the highest level of quality in terms of the content and production, and a lot of time and effort obviously goes into this. So what we'll be looking for is, is for audience members like yourselves, people who listen to the podcast, people who engage with our website content, can, you know, watch our videos, uh, who'd be willing to support the project, um, support the Muslim vibe and help us grow. I mentioned um, in the last podcast that in 2019, we, we want to double our content output. We want to grow substantially. We want to grow the team. Um, and that doesn't come without cost. So if anyone listening to this, um, is able to contribute as little as five pounds a month or as much as five thousand pounds a month but more realistically probably five pounds a month or ten pounds um that would go such a long way uh in terms of contributing to, to helping us kind of reach as many people as possible over the last four years we've we've engaged uh, over 35 million people um with, with this platform and it's something that we've obviously built from the ground up and and it's a project of, of passion for us um, we really love the work that we do and we want to we want to grow our team internally um, and we, we want to be able to kind of commission more articles and videos and, and and really kind of expand in terms of what we do digitally so how you can support us is by visiting the muslimvibe.com forward slash support um, one-off donations or ideally something on a monthly basis would be absolutely incredible and would go such a long way um so without further ado here's my conversation with shane actually i should probably mention that i i apologize a few times in the course of the podcast um because we had some awful technical issues when we were setting up the call um as i mentioned again in the previous 
in the previous podcast, we're, we're trying to increase or improve the quality of things. And so in the process of setting up the call, we were using a different mechanism by which we capture his audience we capture his audio directly from the source as opposed to using a, a mic anyways I'm not going to get into the technical side of things but that whole system was being funny initially um, managed to get it working so I hope that audio is a lot crisper than it previously was when we had guests remotely um, so check it out and again always we appreciate feedback so let me know what you think here we go my interview with Shane Thank you for joining us on the podcast, and I have to apologize to you as well. We've had some technical issues getting started up, but inshallah, we, we should be fine now going forward. Um, so I, I guess I, the, the, you know, how, how we came across, or how I came across your story in the first place, was the, there was a PBS uh, documentary following yourself, and the title of that is actually what drew me in in the first place. It was Redneck Muslim. Um, can you... Tell me, I guess, why or how this whole thing came together and, and where the term redneck Muslim came from? Well, I was approached by uh, Jennifer Taylor and Mustafa Davis, and they were interested in documenting some of the, the work I was doing as a hospital chaplain and exploring um, a Facebook page I'd made called uh, the Society of Islamic Rednecks. So. Um, I actually knew Jennifer Taylor as the director of New Muslim Cool, and I knew Mustafa Davis from being the co-founder of Talif Collective in the Bay Area and the director of several documentaries like Dean Tite and Wayward Son, the Jordan Richter story. So when they contacted me, when they reached out to me, um, I was familiar with their work, and they had both done films that really inspired me and really helped me try to integrate my culture with my being Muslim. Cause I've struggled with that over the years. Like how does someone from my background be a, a Muslim that's true to themselves? And it's, it was very confusing. So uh, they just reached out on Facebook and I uh, wanted to have a discussion over Skype. And, uh, so some people think that I'm, I made the movie about myself, but it was, these two documentary <laughs> filmmakers reached out and they initially, I think they wanted to do a series of shorts on PBS, just showing different Muslims from different parts of the, the country that maybe weren't what popped into your head as a stereotypical Muslim, just to show that the Muslims are not a monolith. You know, you have a big variety of, uh, of practice yeah. and, and, uh, you know, Muslims come from all over the world. So I think that was part of their intention and the, they got so much footage, they decided to turn it into its own little standalone piece. And they decided to call it Redneck Muslim. And just like when I made the Facebook group, uh, when you put the word redneck in Islam or redneck and Muslim in the same sentence, it seems to get a lot more attention. Yeah. So um, that's part of why I did that with the Facebook group, too. And it was kind of tongue in cheek. And it was implying that it's a group of people who, who were from that type of background. And that Islam had helped and helped free us from some of the uh, the negative aspects of that, but it was kind of it was kind of tongue in cheek uh, as well. Yeah, how as in you made that Facebook page? How, I think what's interesting for me, at least, is when I saw the documentary, you could as easily with with how you look and how you sound as easily being like a biker gang or something like that. And I think 
at least in the UK, the perception that, that we get is that when you think of rednecks, you think of the deep south in America, um, and you have this very kind of pro-Trump, anti-Muslim kind of mindset and perception. Um, so I think it's it's in that regard, it's very interesting um, what you're doing, I guess, with the Facebook page. And I guess, you know, the question also comes to mind, how many people are there out there like you? Um, and, and I mean, I'll, I'll put that to you in 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 your part of, you know, in, in the South America, um, in the Southern part of America, how many redneck Muslims are there who are born into white family that, that have converted or whatever else? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I, I haven't gone out and done a census on this, you know, but, uh, so just in my immediate circle of friends, there's probably a half dozen people or so. And the Facebook group has a couple of thousand members, but I don't think most of them are, um, uh, share that experience. So I would, I would probably, it's in the hundred, it's probably in the hundreds. I don't know that it's in the thousands, but, um, that's a good. Mm. That's a good question. I, I don't really know the answer to that. <laughs> it, it, w- it would be something I, I think worth looking into. And and uh, if you don't mind me also asking, how did you come to find Islam, or how did Islam find you? Well, uh, I'm the first generation of my family to go to an integrated school, and I, I grew up in Mississippi, so I grew up in the Deep South, and um, I was taught a lot of racist uh i was socialized to look at the world in a very racist way by my family but as i went to school uh mostly with black black kids mississippi wasn't that diverse at the time but um uh you know i made friends and i realized eventually that there's there's good and bad of all types of people so there was some cognitive dissonance going on things didn't really add up and um when I was exposed to some of the teachings of the Islam and in, in the eighties hip hop, the conscious hip hop, um, I eventually read the autobiography of Malcolm X in the eighties. And that really spoke to me as far as helping me make sense out of the nonsense that I was experiencing. Islam's view on race, uh, really resonated with me and really helped me, uh, navigate, that experience in Mississippi. And then how about, I guess, you know, if we talk about Malcolm X and, and I know in, in the documentary short, you mentioned him a couple of times, but how did you at the time reconcile, I think a lot of the sort of heavy um, race elements to it, especially stuff around, I guess, anti-whiteness and, and black empowerment and everything else. How did you, as someone born and bred in Mississippi, reconciled that and and be able to resonate and relate with with that sentiment. Well, uh, I agreed with what they were saying about white people. Basically, you know, uh, and I think <laughs> it's uh, it's interesting. It's a stage maybe some people can go through, but um, if you look at folks that study, um. I don't know. When I was a chaplain, there was a book in, in the library called Counseling the yeah. Culturally Diverse. And it was a book written, I believe, kind of geared toward white counselors, white therapists. And it had advice about working with different ethnic groups. And then there was one chapter on developing a non-racist white identity. And so it was in inviting the therapist and the counselor to kind of look at some of their preconceived notions, some of their 
maybe uh, subconscious bias and things like this. So it was very interesting as it spoke about from different folks that have done research on this, this topic that it seems people go through these predictable stages where maybe they're not aware of the injustice that's going on around them. And then they become aware of it. And maybe there's some guilt associated with that about how to, uh, how do you navigate the reality realizing that you're, you, you've participated in something that was, uh, harmful to other people. So sometimes people over identify with the person being victimized. So they want to, and you, you may sometimes see that with converts that, um, they want to dress like they're from another culture and totally disassociate yeah. themselves with the dominant culture as a way of their, yeah. they may believe in the religion, but they may also be struggling with how to process that, that grief really for, for doing that. But, uh, and then also some people may go into denial that, that there, there is injustice. So it was very interesting that, when I found that book, that I, really I, resonated with me, and it made a lot of sense that um, yeah. I, I feel like I've gone to, through some of those phases. But as I look at it now, I realize, you know, Islam has a concept of toba that you can, you may have gotten off track from your inherent nature, from your future, from the way that God made you. But it's, it's cool. Yeah. You can turn back and you can try to make things right with someone personally if you've done something against them. But you don't have to carry that grief around with you. You can put it all down and you can contribute to making the world a more just place. So, you know, mm -hmm. Islam really had the medicine for what I think is still a lot of white people, a lot of liberal white people are wrestling with this guilt. They don't know what to do with it. They can put it down and be part of the solution, you know. Mm. Well, what's interesting when, when you speak about this is that most Muslims and most people that I've spoken to on this podcast and just generally, we come from from uh, ethnic minority backgrounds. And as such, we're always talking about white people and about white guilt and the white savior complex and whatever else. But it's like, it's very much the other. Um, whereas you've obviously come from a white Christian background. And so a lot of those kind of sentiments that we would look at liberal white people let's say um and 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 point at them and 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 all of the things that are running through their heads and wh whatever else but you're coming from that background and, and i like how oh, it's very inspiring actually that you kind of see islam as as the saving grace with that i think you know on, on the flip side the issue that we face as as young muslims um in the west like in the uk for example we have this tussle between the term british muslim um and it's are you british first or muslim first and and do the two kind of conflict and i think I, again what was interesting in in the documentary um about yourself is when you you talk about how i think it was in the when you uh, early on when you converted to Islam, you started wearing um, a thobe or like a, a dishnasha and and a, a sort of turban, not out of any religious devotion, but just to kind of piss people off, to piss off your family. Um, and and there was that kind of underlying. Well, I don't know. Was it like an anger that you had or a rebellion? Why why did you choose to do something like that? Well, you know, they, the the film they they filmed for about a week and they chopped it down to sixteen minutes. And they did their best. That, yeah. I mean, I think they did a very good job. But that's there. I mean, it's a little more nuanced than that. I mean, I wore a turban 
and a robe, uh, partially because I was emulating a person that really made a big impact uh, on me at the time, who's uh, Imam Bilal Hyde, who's a, a white convert from the Bay Area, who he converted in the 70s, and he studied in Medina, and he was in the Sudan for about 10 years. Um, so part of it was emulating him as well. So it, it's not that... Um, uh, it's, it wasn't totally to upset my, my parents, you know, it was, it was, it was some of both, but, um, it wasn't motivated, uh, yeah, out of trying to emulate, well, it, maybe it was motiv motivated to some extent trying to emulate the prophet, but I think a lot of it was to kind of buck the system and to try to put some distance, like I, like I was saying, trying to figure out how to process that, uh, feeling out of place and, and, uh, something not feeling right, uh, about my inheritance, what, what my family was passing down to me. Like in the film, it opens with saying my, I think I'm the only person here whose grandfather taught them how to tie a noose. And this is when I was 11 or 12 yeah. years old. So, um, that, that didn't feel right to me. And we all have, you know, uh, fitra and we all have an internal moral compass that, uh, that needs to be nurtured. So, um, yeah. And, and what kind of, uh, well, I guess, how has the experience been? I guess we can use Donald Trump as like a, a sort of watershed moment, I guess, for Muslims in America generally, but what's the experience been like, um, being Muslim and being openly Muslim um, before Trump and after Trump, and and have you been able to to utilize and use that in your kind of unique position in all of that to to spread a sort of message of peace and harmony somehow? Because I think from the outside things seem very bleak in America. Um, you know, tr Trump till this day is talking about building a wall and and keeping out immigrants, and and the the conversation around immigrants I think has become quite synonymous with talking about Muslims. Um, but then again, you, you stand as an individual who uh, would kind of debunk that argument as a born and bred American who is Muslim. Um, but what has, I guess, where does Trump feature in, in the picture for you? Well, I think it's business as usual. I mean, um, maybe it's more been more shocking to some white people. I don't know that it that he's been shocking to black and brown people because uh, I don't know that their experience in America has changed that much before Trump or, or with Trump. I think, you know, the, um, but I, I think m maybe it's not necessarily the, the experience, but more the rhetoric, right? So like in the UK, we, we almost feel like there's cloaked Islamophobia that comes through from government policy, but you, we've never had a prime minister say, I think, or yeah, I think Islam hates us. I think is the quote from Trump, you know, even before his presidency um, or after, I can't remember when that was, but that those kinds of things are very scary. The things that he said about Muslims, um, it, it's genuinely scary that it's so open and that he's managed to galvanize the kind of right wing in the way that he has. And, you know, I can't really speak for black and brown people. I wonder if maybe for black people, but they may not be a surprise as opposed to brown people. Some brown people who thought if they got a big house in the suburbs, they were going to be accepted as a white person. And it's not <laughs> it's not going to happen. Um but no, definitely, I, I I think people's stress levels are up for sure. 
But like I said, my my African-American or my black friends, some of them have told me it's just business as usual. Like this, uh, nothing has changed in my life from when, before he was elected to him being elected, maybe more so for people yeah. who were chasing, who, who, who bought into chasing the American dream, maybe more so with them. And, but, and definitely with white people, they've been given uh, permission to say what, just to speak what was on their mind. But, um, you know, all this was just below the surface anyway. I don't think people, you know, uh, yeah. it wasn't like uh, all this was hidden the way people feel about stuff, especially in the South, maybe in the North, yeah. people try to be, or in certain parts of the country, because the, again, the country also is very nuanced from place to place in America. It can be a very, very different culturally, but people in the South, they're pretty open about, um, they're pretty open about their racism, but also at the same time, the people still, they retain some of their fitra. Like, even though it would be common, maybe that uh, a white person may not want their kids marrying a black person, but they still may hold the door open for a black woman going into a business, or they may still pull over and help yeah. someone that's broke down. Even if, if, even if there's racist. So there's still for the majority of people, I think there's some, base level of adab and aklak manners and morals that maybe you don't find yeah. in, in other parts of the world that's that's uh, interesting that you see that in the south so you you've mentioned fitra now a few times and like our sort of um i, I would i would define it as our sort of natural inclination towards god i don't know if that's a, an appropriate definition but uh, what does it what does fitra mean to you and and in terms of like the people in the south um and i guess non-muslims family members wh whoever else that you might interact with do you do you think uh, how do you think i guess that their fitra comes into play and and is there a way to that, that you see them as being godly without being godly if that makes sense like you you, know, you just mentioned the akhlaq and whatever else that people have well yeah i mean a lot of these people are very much in, in tune with nature and they and they honor their parents, you know, and they consider work to be worship, right? Like the prophet, peace be upon him, told us. But I don't know what my influence is beyond just my immediate circle of people. But I'm I'm in a field and I, and I do different type of service that at least allows me to meet people on a one on one basis. And the documentary has been good uh, to show people that. Um, a different perspective on race in this country, because I think a lot, a lot of these people, uh, they're not necessarily evil people and they're people that they probably want something better than what they have, you know, but them finding peace and them being, and being happy. I think it's, it lies in realizing that there's a oneness of humanity, that we have a common ancestry and, Mm. you know maybe some people would feel like it's not okay to be proud of your uh your group or whatever but i think there's room for that you can be you can be proud of whatever heritage you are as long as that's built upon an understanding that there's a oneness of humanity and there's not these hard uh categories of race as as we've kind of bought into but um yeah people want something i mean I, people are suffering people are not happy I mean, and, and this, um, 
Yeah. It's, tra- it's, it's a different type of trauma. It's not, it's not the trauma that black people have gone through, but it's a, you've, you've betrayed your soul. A lot didn't make you that way. A lot didn't make you racist. It's actually going against your, your, your nature to be racist. So people suffer. Yeah. There's a certain price you pay to carry that around with you to make yourself feel like you're better than someone. But, um, so I, I think sometimes you see like the, the uh, documentaries about a clan leader or whatever that leaves, leaves the clan. And then he has like his best friends black or whatever. I mean, I think it, it's painful to carry that around with you because I don't think you were, uh, you're hardwired to behave that way anyway. I mean, definitely I can see maybe people want to hang out with people they can relate to. That's one thing, but, uh, thinking someone's not as human as you are is a, a totally different story. And there's, mm. yeah, I think it, it's painful it, and it's traumatic on a level of your soul to have that pushed on you too, you know, when a lot didn't make you like that. You're an innocent little child and then someone tries to teach that to you. And in your heart, you know that's not yeah. true, but you have to submit to that for survival as a child, you know? So that's a whole, that's, that's the kind of stuff that interests me. Like talking to liberals about all this stuff, I'm not really interested in that. I think the more interesting conversation is uh, maybe with people that don't totally agree with you, you know? Mm. And, and in, in your role as a, as a chaplain, um, do you have those kinds of conversations? Because I, I imagine you must come across all different types of people in that capacity. Um, I had a family member who was a chaplain and, and the stories that, that they would come back with were at times quite scary and, and emotional because, you know, you, you have people going through extreme trauma um, and you're supposed to be there and offer them a sort of a shoulder to cry on and like a religious perspective on things. Um, but everyone's in a different place with God, with themselves, with, with everything. Um, so, yeah, how, how, does that, how does that work out for you? Yeah, that's, that's kind of what I was alluding to, that um, I think one-on-one interactions with people, whether it's visiting someone in the hospital or speaking mm-hmm. at a, a church, at an interfaith event at a church, or just being in, you don't, do you know what Waffle House is? Like a place where you eat waffles? Okay. So, yeah. It's a, it's a very southern. It's a restaurant, yeah, it's right? it's a very southern thing. You, you would, it's got its own okay. culture. But, um, so, or it could oh, be. Oh, really? It could be being at Waffle House. Like I was in Waffle House with a, I had a green Dickies work shirt on and a green poofy. And this little old white man started asking me about my little hat. He's like something yeah. about my little hat. And I said, yeah, it matches my Dickies work shirt. And then we kind of segued into talking about how nowadays some, sometimes you can only find things on Amazon, you know, and this is in a rural area, North yeah. Carolina. So um, those one-on-one interactions with human beings where they can tell you don't have a problem with them, because also part of this conversation, we all have egos and we all have nuffs and it's easy to point the finger at people and demonize people. But Allah tells us yeah. when you when you encounter something you perceive as evil, we need to respond with what's better. And then Allah may reconcile between people. So I may not agree totally with people, but I'm not going to throw away my manners and morals when I deal with those people because I'm trying to, mm-hmm. to embody a prophetic way of dealing with other human beings. And you look at 
the prophet, peace be upon him, how he dealt with people. I mean, do we want to pay lip service yeah. to this or do we want to try to embody it? And it's, it's really powerful if you can uh, extend uh, care to other human beings. But also, it's easier for me because I'm a white man, right? And for some people, I can totally understand you may not want to deal with people that don't want you in this country. But for me, part mm-hmm. of these people are my family. So I'm in a position where I don't really have a choice to opt out. I have to honor my family as much as I can. And yeah. so I think it's a pretty, it's a unique situation for some of us that are white people in this country. Because uh, it's hard to opt out of having the conversation with people that may be difficult to dialogue with. Right. But um, uh, we have we have people. I mean, it's maybe upset some people that I would say like there are Salaf, but we have people in this country who who've done this. One is the Reverend Will Campbell. So he was a, a preacher from Mississippi who was from a racist background. He rejected that. And he was behind the scenes with Dr. King working. But then he would also go and sit with the Ku Klux Klan members and call them away from this racism, you know. So we have models of people in our community doing this, you know. So that's one of the people that's inspired me as well. Uh, Will Campbell is, uh, I think, uh, someone I encountered in my in my hospital chaplaincy, uh, the teachings of Will Campbell. So uh, it's another big inspiration and as well as Malcolm X and, you know. And, and there's, I think, even in the title of the um, the organization, the Southern Hospitality Islamic Center, um, I think it's a, a beautiful kind of reconciliation of of almost like those two worlds, even though they're obviously not mutually exclusive. But we have this notion, and like I've I've been to America only a handful of times, but I I know the concept of Southern hospitality, um, and, and that you know that kind of uh, giving to guests and and welcoming people and you know, accepting people as your family, even though you've just met them, that kind of concept is is quite deeply embedded um, in Southern culture. And then you've got, I think, Islamic culture, if we can call it that, where we have very similar concepts about, you know, we have a hadith that talk about, you know, knowing 40 neighbors to your left and to your right and in front and behind you. Um, and, and it's all about helping others and and there's a big emphasis placed on on silaraham as well like looking after your family and keeping relations and whatever else um so it, it's I, I guess the way that you kind of brought those two things together is 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 important um but again for for people who don't know much more about it what can you tell me more about the organization about the southern hospitality islamic center well that's that's just a dream in my head basically you know like, um, mm-hmm. there's not a physical space. And initially, this was kind of conceived as maybe an online learning platform. But I, I realized that uh, you can have the most impact just dealing with the people in your immediate sphere of influence. So I, I yeah. stopped trying to do things online and just started focusing on the dozen or so people that are in this area. And even with that people are not chomping at the bit necessarily to do a a class on theology or uh law or sometimes maybe spirituality but people need community you know people need it's it's you know basically part of the root 
for the word for a human being in Arabic is that we we need to be have community and need to have relationship with each other to be healthy. So um, I focus more on that, and as a result of um, just trying, trying to be of service to people. A lot of opportunities have opened up for me to partner with different masjids here. So I've kind of folded that work or that, that idea of Southern hospitality Islamic center. Like I do a class at uh, one of the local masjids in in conjunction with one of the local masjids on Sundays. I do every third Friday. I do the khutbah at the oldest masjid in North Carolina at uh, Arazak. So I've taken some of the, um, the activities I was doing and that were meeting needs of people that weren't being addressed at most of the masjids. And I've been partnering with the masjids that are very open. And both of these are African-American communities. They're both communities that came out of the nation of Islam and that were under the leadership of Imam W.D. Muhammad. Uh, may Allah bless him. So I'm an associate imam in both of those communities right now. So that that wasn't oh, uh, so that's all transpired uh, as the film was going along, you know. And that's that's part of what I'm why I mentioned the fitra is that uh, you know not losing hope that Allah can take someone. Ibn Abdullah mentions that you know I'm paraphrasing. If you don't think Allah can take you and make you a saint within a second. You're underestimating the power of Allah, just like all these people that we see that may be against Islam. Allah can change people's hearts. Like I'm proof that Allah can change people's hearts. And even sitting there with all these ex-members of the nation of Islam who maybe used to think white people were devils, I'm giving the khutbah to them in their masjid. Allah can change people's hearts and bring them together. You know, we don't, you know, even though we're we're not sure what's going to happen. We have to know that Allah knows what's going to happen. That I, we're not, we, we feel out of control, but we need to trust Allah's in control. You know. I think that's a that's a really beautiful kind of thought. Um, like, like you said, if you have ex um, members of the the Nation of Islam sitting there and you're giving a khutbah, just that image in itself is really striking, and and, and it goes to show that you know things can change with time. Um, I guess now, now probably, you know, one of my last questions I wanted to ask is about the future of America um, and and the relationship, I guess, the country has with Islam. Are you hopeful? Well, yeah, we're dead in the water if we're not hopeful. So I'm all, yeah, God willing, I can always be hopeful, you know. Um, Mm. But I don't need everyone to be Muslim in America, you know, but I I need... uh, hopefully for people of of good intention to work together so that we can all flourish you know i don't i don't particularly yeah. you know i can share uh what i believe islam uh teaches us with somebody and then they they choose what they want to do but um I, i'm i'm hopeful that maybe all this is coming to a head that people are starting to realize uh we need each other you know, we can't, mm. uh, that this saying, I need to hoard all these resources for myself and demonize the other people. This is not working out that great for us. You know, the world is, it, it, you get a sense that the world is starting to fall apart. And, uh, 
you know, the white people numbers are dwindling in America too. You know, there's all these, these, there's all these things coming. It seems like it's pushing people toward having to confront, uh, the race issue in this country. And, um, you know, so I'm hopeful that as people are being forced to interact with each other in different ways, that, uh, there's a large number of people realizing that we have a common humanity. You know, there are people that are hardliners, but I think a lot more people are more toward the center and, um, they realize that, uh, that, you know, poor people have been getting, uh, have been, been, been played by rich people, basically. Four white and black people have been pitted against each other in this country. I think some people are starting to wake up and see that. Um, so mm. however it goes down, I, I, I'm, I have to be hopeful, but, um, uh, yeah, this is an opportunity for America to model how you, purify yourself of this uh hate for other human beings you know i think that's really that's one way to look at it we could look at it like everything's falling apart or we could look at it like we have the perfect opportunity to rise to the occasion to model what a world uh where people work together where people can be themselves people can be proud of their heritage whatever but realizing that we're all one human race that we all they're all came from one creator and uh there's enough to go around and if we work together then we could we could flourish and have uh have happier and healthier lives god willing you know inshallah Uh, i think just one last reflection from myself um just listening to you speak i i realized that i think in america today um, the, the issue of, of race, and, and I think a lot of conversations are framed around race and, and even when it comes to matters of equality and everything else. And it's very easy, at least for us in the UK, to almost forget that you know, the, the times of segregation weren't that long ago. Um, as you mentioned, that your, your grandfather taught you how to tie a noose at the age of 10 or 11. Um, for him, he would have grown up in a vastly different world to to how you've grown up um and it's just i guess it's almost like a testament to to the ability of humans to to change and and that you know whilst there is a lot of issues still underlying um within america there's been a there has been a huge shift um in a positive direction in my opinion now i don't know obviously as an american you'd probably be better placed to, to comment on this but I feel like there is progress, but what disheartens me at times is that whenever we see, whenever it seems like we're making some sort of progress, something happens. So like, for example, we had Obama, then we had Trump. Obama, you know, for all his shortcomings, there was progress there. The fact that it was a black man as the president, you know, whether you talk about whether it's him that was actually controlling things or whatever else, I think is a separate issue. That in itself is quite symbolic. But then the next president to come in was President Trump. And he's almost undone all of that kind of positivity. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. It's just, it's just always interesting that whenever, whenever I get into talking about politics um, with someone in America, race is like a very, very strong issue that, that, that always rises to the surface. Yeah, I didn't realize until I had some folks uh, uh, from England really push back on some of, some of our conversations where they, they, there's no way for them to really understand unless they grew up here. And 
But yeah. still, like I said, we all have ego. We all have enough. So it's not, I don't want to demonize white people totally either. Like we all have issues, whether we're white, black, brown, whatever color we are, we have issues. We all have things that we have to mm. work on. We all have to uh, try to purify our souls and work together with other people because these basically the virtues that, that people respect, like generosity and kindness and patience and these are pretty much universal. They resonate with all kinds of people. So it's it's on all of us, not just white people. It's on everybody to, to try to be vigilant and monitor our reactions to the world and to other people and see, are they in harmony with what we claim to hold sacred? You know, we all have work to do, right? But um, most definitely in this country, if that's not something that you're that's on your radar, I think you might be asleep because... Um, uh, but it, it, it's an opportunity to know God as well. It's a, we're, we're set up for success in, in one way that this could be, this could, this could help us know God. Like one time I was given, uh, the chutzpah and there were some older, you know, it's older African American people at this particular masjid. And I kind of dawned on me, like, I wonder how many of these people are saints that I'm speaking to that they they navigated everything that they went through with such honor and such grace that they can shake my hand and welcome me into this space and i can tell that they really love me you know how does a how does a human being do that you know not that you would wish anyone to go through any suffering but um it it, it kind of made me reflect on that like i wonder how many yeah. saints have come out, popped out the other side of that experience. You know? No, a hundred percent. I think um, whenever, whenever there's another kind of movie or documentary, looking back um, at, at the, the dark history of America, which is, you know, very, very recent, you, you realize that, and there are, you know, people alive today that have experienced racism in its most uh, unfiltered and, and horrible, horrible form. And, and are still kind of smiling today. And, and you would think that, that that experience in itself could put you off human beings altogether. But they've somehow come out the other end and, and, and still have that grace and dignity about them. And I think ultimately their, their reward is with God for their patience. Um, I think that that's it from me. Um, I wanted to, to thank you for taking the time out. Again, I want to apologize. We had to reschedule the first time. And this time at the beginning, we had some technical issues. But... This has been a really interesting conversation and, and thank you for, for opening up and just sharing your experience with us. Yeah. And I, you know, I hope, you know, if I've said anything wrong, I, I hope people forgive me, but you know, these are, these are very touchy, delicate uh, conversations. And I could say the same thing that everyone else says, but uh, I don't know. I tried to just uh, speak my mind and uh, try to be honest. But at the same time, I'm learning. So uh, I, I, what I said today in a year, I may realize I had some blind spots. And, you know, um, that's why it's vital that we, we we connect with these elders of these communities and our elders and yeah. all, you know, whatever our communities, you know, that we uh, we, we try to honor them and learn from them and uh, and, and help them uh, got let them guide us, you know, so. Yeah, and I, and I think you're you're spot on as well when it comes to like even for myself looking back at 
I would I would say previous versions of myself because like, we evolve so much and, and I look back at something I've written previously or said previously and I think that's not me today um, but being aware in your current place that what you're saying now is not like a definitive absolute statement I think is is important and it's important that we acknowledge that in others as well because for example if you had taken or if I took what you said before you're converting to Islam whatever those views that you might have had might have been if I take that as, okay, this is what um, Shane thinks, then w we wouldn't kind of be having this conversation today, if that makes sense. Sure. Because I'd be like, oh, this guy's a write-off. But then obviously we change our hearts open and whatever else. Um, so I think that's really important. But th again, thank you very much for, for, for coming on the podcast and sharing your story. Yeah, I, I, I generally don't accept all, uh, invitations to do things like this. So um, I was really... Oh, really? Yeah, I was really uh, glad when y'all reached out. So uh, it was good to be with you. I appreciate you having me on. <laughs> well, well, thank you. Thank you for accepting yeah, the invitation. Yeah, sure. And, and it, it would be great if, if you're ever in London, then, then do send me an email. It would be lovely to meet Let's up. Let's do it. Inshallah. Thank you very much. Okay. So I just wanted to thank Shane for his time and for his really fascinating insights, actually, into into everything i think that the unique perspective that he has um is something that we can all kind of learn from his experience and the work that he's done has all been shaped by um his identity and then reconciling that with islam um, and how he can kind of bring a sense of of harmony and and uh bridge that gap almost and i feel like we all have our own unique niches um and our own place in this wider conversation around identity and belonging and reconciling all of that with Islam and so it's it's a lesson if anything in, in just how we can utilize and and leverage what we already have and, and how we can make an impact in sort of wider society and I think people like Shane um, doing the work that they do going out there and being kind of uh, loud and proud Muslims who also work to to really address some of the kind of historic ills of society. We talked about racism um, and, and and all of that kind of stuff. It's 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 a lot of food for thought, to be honest. Um, next week on the podcast, we hope to bring you um, an interview with Shaf, who's one of the co-founders um, of the Riz Test. Uh, which looks at the portrayal of Muslims in the media, specifically in TV and movies. Um, they're doing some fantastic work, and I, I think when it comes to kind of the representation of Muslims in the media, I, I, we all know where things are at right now, but it's difficult to kind of quantify and, and, and put your finger on it and, and explain what the issue is. So, what the RIS test does is essentially bring an element of that to the table and like gives a framework by which we can start grading um, content. So it, it, it's going to be an interesting conversation. Make sure you check it out. Please also be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on um, and, and get in touch if you have any thoughts, feedback, anything really. You can reach me on Salim at themuslimvibe.com. Um, once again, I hope you enjoyed this week's podcast and We'll see you next week, inshallah. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.